This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day and welcome to episode 36 of AFF On Air. It is Saturday the 16th of May 2020 and I'm your host Matt Graham. In today's episode, I chat to Chris Bornellis, a Virgin Australia 737 pilot who you may know as Aviator Inside on the Ask the Pilot thread. In an in-depth interview, we talk about Chris's career flying Saab 340s, Boeing 777s and now Boeing uh, 737s, and what the current situation means for Virgin Australia's pilots. Also coming up, how to maximise your frequent flyer points on the ground. But first, let's dive into this fortnight's news. And the biggest story of the last few weeks remains the voluntary administration process of Virgin Australia. Last night, indicative bids from potential new buyers of Virgin Australia were due, and it's understood that the administrators from Deloitte have received eight serious bids from various parties, including Twiggy Forest, Indigo Partners, and a consortium including the Queensland Government. Final bids are now due on the 12th of June. But there are now reports that Virgin may not even have enough liquidity to keep operating until the sale is completed. A report in the Sydney Morning Herald last night claims that Virgin is down to its last $100 million, which could be gone by the middle of June. The administration process is expected to take until August. During the last week, the Federal Court approved a proposal by the Virgin Australia Administrator to offer restrictive conditional credits to Virgin Australia customers instead of refunds. The new policy applies to Virgin Australia, Tiger Air and Virgin Australia bookings that were made before the airline entered administration on the 21st of April. According to the new conditional travel credit policy for Virgin Australia Group customers, eligible customers may now be entitled to a conditional credit if their flight was cancelled by the airline or if they had a refundable booking. But if the customer chose to cancel or if they have already received a refund, credit or any other sort of remedy, they're not eligible for a conditional credit. The credits come with severe uh, limitations and the administrators will only guarantee that conditional credits will remain valid while the company is in voluntary administration. It will then be up to the airline's new owners as to whether conditional credits will be accepted beyond this point. If they're not accepted, those with unused travel credits will most likely become unsecured creditors and will receive very little. Meanwhile, it seems the offer of a conditional credit may prevent some Virgin Australia customers from being able to request a credit card chargeback. Most Velocity frequent flyer redemptions remain off the table for now, including transfers to Singapore Airlines Chrisflyer, but Virgin did yesterday bring back some domestic flight redemptions on a selection of 20 domestic routes for travel after the 1st of September this year. The list of eligible routes includes key trunk routes like Melbourne to Sydney, Brisbane to Townsville, Melbourne to Perth, Adelaide to Sydney and Perth to Broome, but none of the eligible routes include anywhere in Tasmania or the Northern Territory at this stage. Velocity says that it will waive all change and cancellations fees, regardless of whether it's the passenger or Virgin Australia that cancels the flight, for new reward seat bookings made between the 15th of May and the 31st of August this year for travel after the 1st of September. The points and cash used to make the booking will then be refunded in full, excluding credit card or booking fees, which is a good thing because at this point it's totally unclear whether all, some or even any of um, the flights currently being sold for travel beyond September will actually operate. Virgin Australia is still currently selling its normal schedule of flights that would have operated before COVID-19 for travel uh, beyond September. The airline may cancel some of those flights or even all of them at a later date, and depending on the outcome of the voluntary administration process, there is a possibility that Virgin will be a completely different airline then, with even perhaps a different name, or it might not even exist at all. All Australian banks have now suspended the ability to transfer reward points to Velocity Frequent Flyer, and all Velocity-affiliated credit cards have now been withdrawn to applications from new customers. If you have an existing Velocity credit card with American Express, for example, you may be eligible now to swap it to a Qantas co-branded card or ones that earns points with the bank's own loyalty program. Should the sale of Virgin Australia be unsuccessful, leaving Australia without a competitor to Qantas on key domestic routes, regional airline Rex is considering jumping in. Just weeks after begging the government for a bailout in order to survive, Rex is now floating the possibility of leasing 10 A320s or Boeing 737s and flying them on domestic uh, routes between the capital cities. Rex normally operates services exclusively to regional destinations, 
using an, uh, an aging fleet of Saab 340 aircraft. But Rex Deputy Chairman John Sharp believes the airline would be able to lease narrowbody jets at very competitive prices at the moment. The airline would then hire its own pilots, flight attendants and ground staff. The Rex board says that it will make a decision in the next eight weeks, which conveniently is probably after we have a pretty good idea of what happens to Virgin. If Rex decides to proceed, the plan would be to commence domestic operations on the 1st of March 2021. In other news, Woolworths Rewards has launched a promotion in partnership with Qantas Frequent Flyer, allowing members to earn up to 50 status credits at Woolworths until the end of June. If you're a Woolworths Rewards member and you've opted into earning Qantas points, you'll earn already 1,000 Qantas points for every 2,000 Woolworths Rewards points that are converted to Qantas. And between now and the 30th of June, you'll also earn 10 Qantas status credits each time 2,000 Woolworths Rewards points are converted to Qantas points, up to a maximum of 50 status credits per member. Unfortunately, this promotion is not available to Tasmanian residents because the Woolworths Rewards program does not operate in Tasmania. Instead, Woolworths operates a loyalty program in Tasmania called Frequent Shopper Club. But this is soon set to change, with Woolworths confirming to us that it will replace the Frequent Shopper Club with Woolworths Rewards in Tasmania by the end of this year. A Woolworths Rewards spokesperson told us that they will need to be mindful of their existing popular program in Tasmania and what it means to their members. Qantas is now offering flight credits to passengers that were booked to fly until the end of September 2020. Uh, Before the start of this month, it was only up until the end of July. Qantas credit vouchers can now also be used towards multiple new bookings rather than just one booking of equal or greater value. But the national carrier is no longer waiving change fees for customers that choose to convert the value of their booking to a credit voucher after the start of this month. Qantas has secured an additional $550 million in funding, with a new loan secured against three more wholly owned Boeing 787 aircraft. In a market update last week, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce said that Qantas now has sufficient liquidity to survive until at least December 2021. But this is not without trade-offs. Project Sunrise is now delayed indefinitely, and Qantas's A380 refurbishment program is now suspended, having only upgraded six aircraft out of 12. Last week, Qantas also announced that it will extend its domestic and trans-Tasman cancellations until at least the end of June, and all other international flights will be cancelled at least until the end of July, but probably this will be extended again in the future. Qantas announced back in March that it will extend the status of frequent flyers for an extra 12 months. But some frequent flyers that had been planning to upgrade to a higher status tier based on their originally booked travel have been caught short. Numerous Qantas frequent flyer members ended their membership year in April just 10 or 20 status credits short of upgrading to a higher status tier. These members' status run plans were of course thwarted by the COVID-19 government travel restrictions that meant that they couldn't travel but Qantas will not offer any flexibility to these members. In a statement to Australian Frequent Flyer, Qantas defended its position not to offer any flexibility to those in this position, despite Virgin Australia giving out monthly um, velocity status credit gifts to account for members in this exact situation. Etihad Airways resumed flights to Australia yesterday. Starting from yesterday, it is now flying once a week from Melbourne to London via Abu Dhabi. Australians are not currently allowed to enter or even transit through the United Arab Emirates, so the same aircraft will fly all the way through to London and passengers will remain on board during the refuelling stop in Abu Dhabi. Emirates, meanwhile, is resuming three weekly flights each from both Melbourne and Sydney to Dubai from next week. Qatar Airways has remained uh, serving Australia throughout the whole crisis, and Qatar will be temporarily bringing back its service between Doha and Brisbane from next week, with three weekly Brisbane flights operated by Airbus A350-1000s running between the 20th of May and the 30th of June 2020. Flight Centre has reversed its controversial policy of charging $300 per passenger for involuntary flight cancellations due to the pandemic. The travel agency will also refund customers that have already been charged this cancellation fee. But if you think the change of heart came out of the goodness of the travel agent's heart... Well, think again, they only amended this policy because the ACCC was going to take them to court if they didn't. 
Flight centre cancellation fees will still be charged if your flight or travel booking has not been cancelled by the provider or because you choose to initiate, initiate the cancellation yourself. This new policy also applies to other businesses that are part of the Flight Centre Travel Group, which include Art Betty, Travel Associates, Student Universe, Universal Traveller and BYO Jet Travel. To encourage customers to choose a Flight Centre credit instead of a refund, the agency is now offering additional vouchers and a complimentary captain's package to customers when they use their voucher. For every $2,000 um, that would be refunded, customers will receive a $50 of extra value. In some more welcome news, Cathay Pacific has eliminated fuel surcharges. This applies to both commercial and frequent flyer redemption bookings, but excludes tickets that originate in Japan, where a small published surcharge continues to apply. Overall, it's great news for Qantas frequent flyer members that might be redeeming points to fly with Cathay Pacific in the future, as the co-payments on Cathay reward flights are now very low. Although Qantas is no longer filling its aircraft seat pockets with reading material, and many planes are now temporarily grounded, Qantas has continued to produce and print its in-flight magazine. But this month's Qantas magazine is not written for the passengers looking to pass time on their flight. Instead, the magazine is being mailed out to selected Qantas frequent flyer Platinum, Platinum One and Chairman's Lounge members who have received the magazine in the post. If you didn't receive a magazine and you'd like to have a read, it is available to read online for free. Finally, Avianca has filed for bankruptcy this week. Avianca is the national airline of Colombia in South America and a Star Alliance member, but is perhaps best known in Australia for its popular Life Miles frequent flyer program. The good news is that Life Miles is a separate company to Avianca and Life Miles is not bankrupt. The program continues to operate as normal, at least for now, and Life Miles is promising members that their miles are safe. This does sound somewhat familiar to what we heard last month from Velocity Frequent Flyer, but a key difference here is that Life Miles is not uh, suspending the ability to redeem miles at this time. So we'll see what happens, but uh, this is something we'll be keeping an eye on in the future. That's what's making news this fortnight. For regular news updates and deals, subscribe to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette or follow us on Facebook. With many of us grounded and no current fixed end date for the government-mandated travel restrictions, it's safe to say that most of us are not earning or burning any points in the air right now. But there are still lots of opportunities to maximise your frequent flyer and loyalty points on the ground. Now is also the ideal time to reassess your points-earning strategy and to be saving up your points so that you can redeem them when travel returns to normal. And there are still plenty of ways to earn points on the ground, from credit cards to online shopping and wine purchases. For example, you might be aware of some of the great bonus points offers that we regularly see from Qantas Wine. By buying wine from Qantas during a good promotion, you can be earning 10, 15 or even 20,000 bonus Qantas points for less than the cost of just buying top-up points. And of course, you get a nice case of wine as well for roughly the same price that you would have paid in store for the wine. Of course, you can also earn lots of points from credit card sign-up bonuses. This month, for example, you can earn up to 150,000 bonus Qantas points with the Qantas Premier Titanium Credit Card, or 130,000 Qantas points with the new NAB Qantas Rewards Signature Card. And with the Qantas Premier Platinum Card, which has a $299 annual fee, you'd earn up to 100,000 Qantas points for signing up and 75 status credits. And any Qantas points that you earn on the ground, including from credit card sign-up bonuses, count towards Qantas Points Club membership. If you earn at least 150,000 Qantas points in your membership year, with at least 130,000 points earned from non-flying activity, you'll become a Points Club member. The benefits of Points Club include Qantas Club lounge passes and the ability to earn status credits on Qantas Classic Flight Reward bookings made using points. And that's particularly interesting and a potentially lucrative benefit. In terms of reassessing your points earning strategy, now really is the time to think about where you're earning your points, which program you're getting the points in, particularly when it comes to credit card spend. If you're earning points directly with one particular frequent flyer program, that comes with some risks. Those with uh, credit cards that earn exclusively velocity frequent flyer points at the moment will know this very well. 
But even in normal times, it's a very good idea to earn points with a credit card rewards program rather than a particular airline because you then have the option to transfer the points to multiple different frequent flyer programs as needed. This gives you more options when you want to redeem the points for a flight, allowing you to take advantage of whichever program has the best award availability or the lowest redemption costs. And of course, there is very little risk that an Australian bank is going to go out of business anytime soon or that your points will expire, so it's also a safer option in the current climate. So if you're not already earning points from a credit card in a flexible bank-operated loyalty program, you might want to reconsider at the moment. I'm going to be talking in detail about this and lots of other strategies to maximise your points on the ground during the pandemic in an upcoming Frequent Flyer Solutions webinar. Frequent Flyer Solutions, of course, is our sister website. This webinar will take place at 8pm Australian Eastern Time on Wednesday the 27th of May. To register or find out more information about this webinar, you can check out the link in the episode notes or visit frequentflyer.com.au forward slash webinars. We're all following the current situation with Virgin Australia, which now finds itself in voluntary administration and looking for a new owner. It's a nervous wait for those of us with Velocity Points and uh, Virgin Australia flight credits, but I can only imagine how much worse this would be for someone who is employed by Virgin Australia. Uh, One of those people is Chris Bornellis, who you might recognise from the Ask the Pilot forum as Aviator Insight, and he's a Virgin Australia Boeing 737 First Officer based in Sydney. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks very much for having me, mate. It's great to have you here. So throughout this whole process with Virgin Australia, where do you fit into this? Well, pretty much it's a whole wait and see um, approach that they're taking. Uh, The company's being really, really good at uh, explaining things to us, uh, what this means at at this time. You know, it's very unfamiliar to a lot of people. Uh, Certainly some pilots have been around from uh, the ANSET days. So they're sort of putting in their, their two cents worth and, um, sort of unfortunately going through it again, but uh, hopefully there's a different outcome this time. Yeah. So when's the last time you operated in a flight and uh, are you expecting to fly again anytime soon? Yeah, absolutely. So the last time I flew was uh, 3rd of April, uh, which is about almost six weeks ago. Um, basically to, to keep me current, I need to do a one takeoff and landing every 45 days. So um, what's happening now is uh, I've actually got a, a flight happening on Friday, Um uh, which is good. It's basically two days before I expire, so it looks like they're getting me getting me in current uh, before I expire again. Yeah, where are you flying to? Uh, so it's a full sector day. Uh, so it'll be Sydney to Melbourne to Adelaide, and then the return in the afternoon, uh, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney. Okay. What would happen if you if you weren't doing this flight and you kind of your currency expired? Would you have to do some simulator exercises or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, it, it's a little bit tougher uh, at the moment getting crew uh, into different bases. So we'd have to go to either Melbourne or Brisbane for the for the sim just to get current again. That wouldn't take too long. But um, I guess if, if things start ramping up pretty quickly, they want crew who are current who can uh, help ramp up flights again. So obviously, um, yeah, not a lot of flying going on at the moment. Uh, what are you doing to pass the time? Uh, honestly, just uh, enjoying the time at home. Uh, it's, it's something I haven't done. Uh, pretty much my entire career to have this much time off uh, in between flights. So uh, just spending time with the family, getting things done around the house that I actually wouldn't have been able to do, uh, getting the, the the body clock back in check. Uh, that, that's a big thing. I've actually noticed my rest has, uh, has been a lot better, um, yeah, just by taking a little bit of time off and resetting it. That's really interesting because uh, uh, you might remember I had JB747, John Bartels, on the podcast last year, and he was saying that mm-hmm. um, he's constantly finding that he's just in a completely jet-lagged state until he would have like a month or two off, and then uh, you'd kind of realize how uh, how much more refreshed you feel. Is that your experience? Absolutely. Uh, e- even with domestic flying, the body clock doesn't change much uh, in terms of time zones and jet lag, but we're doing a lot more sectors, a lot more flights. Um, all different times you know in the same week i could start at four in the morning and then by the end of the week finish at midnight um yeah so to have that range is is it, it is taxing on the body um so to have you know six weeks between flights it's uh, it's quite refreshing yeah no definitely and uh how are you, how are you and your colleagues coping like throughout this whole process yeah we're we're, we're actually doing quite well um 
there's, there's a lot of camaraderie happening. Um, we're constantly talking to each other, calling each other. We've got our own pilot forum uh, within the Virgin Network um, that we're all just sort of making sure that everyone's doing okay. People that need to reach out can. Um, we're all just being there f- for each other. You know, I think that's, that's quite important, uh, especially during these unprecedented times. So the Virgin Australia, New Zealand, Tiger, Tiger uh, crew that have been made redundant, uh, we're all just making sure that they're all um, that they're they're all doing okay. Um, yeah, the, the good thing about those guys though is is the the network that they've got and access to us still, uh, making sure that they're still okay. Uh, if they do need to or can come back uh, within a five year period, Virgin are going to let them to do that if there are any uh, internal vacancies. Um, so so that's that's a bit of a light in the tunnel for those guys if if it turns out that. Um, that things do start ramping up quickly. I guess I want to go back a little bit um, and talk about your career as a pilot so far. So I guess, first of all, why did you want to become a pilot? Well, uh, ever since I was, I was a kid, like I, I've never actually wanted to do anything else. Uh, we, I did a lot of flying uh, as a kid. Um, so basically moving around for, for my father's work uh, all around the world. So he was a microbiologist. I'm the only pilot in the family. Okay. Um, yeah. So we, we we did a lot of flying. He was um, basically selling microscopes to to hospitals. So um, uh, around the world. And um, yeah, basically, I caught the bug very early on. I remember in the states, uh, we were able to actually listen in on the communications between the pilots and air traffic control. And I would sit there for hours just listening to it. So. I was very easily uh, kept entertained on those flights and, yeah, just caught the bug early, I guess. Yeah. I think United still has the, is it Channel 9 or um, on their on their in-flight entertainment, you can still listen in. Do you think other airlines should do that? Uh, <laughs> probably between communications, sure. Uh, between in, in the intercom between the pilots, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, fair enough. Um, so how did you start your career? Did you start by doing, uh, I guess, training or yeah, what was, what was your progression? Yeah. So I, I started off uh, through the Air Force cadets. Um, basically that was a, a really good way for me to, to do it while I was at school. Um, uh, because I knew that's what I wanted from early on. It was, uh, it was pretty easy to, to do. Uh, funnily enough though, I actually wanted to go gliding first because I could do that earlier and go solo earlier. Um, you could do that at 15 whereas powered flying was at 16. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, my parents wouldn't actually sign the form for me to go gliding because there was no engine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I started off with powered flying. Um, basically, every school holidays, I'd spend a week out at Camden and uh, progress all the way up through a, a GFPT, which is like a restricted PPL these days. Um, got through that through uh, high school, and then straight out of there, it was a one-year uh, commercial uh, course that I did, and through that I got my PPL, private pilot license, commercial pilot's license, multi-engine instrument rating, um, and my airline theory, uh, which is a prerequisite back then to get your airline transport license. So I did that through 2004, and then 2005, still hadn't had a job. Um, even though I had my commercial license, it's actually quite hard to to break that. Um, basically, you apply to all these little little airlines and um, charter companies, uh, but they want plenty of experience. But you need to get experience to to get the job. Catch so, me too, eh? Exactly, exactly right. So I realised I had a passion for teaching um, it, through the Air Force cadets. I, I loved it. So um, I thought, well, I might as well do my instructor rating. So I ended up doing that through 2005, managed to get a job uh, only a couple of weeks after I finished, uh, which was good, and then just fell into it from there. So uh, Bankstown is where I then uh, was instructing. Um, did that for probably about five years in total. Um, from there, I then moved into uh, freight running. So it was basically in, a, in an error commander. Uh, based out of Essendon, so I had to move move down to Essendon for that. And, um, yeah, that, that was a pretty tough job in itself. That was a split shift. So that was up at 3 in the morning, fly till about Ouch. 8 in the morning. Ooh. Yeah, fly, fly till about 8 in the morning, um, spend all day at a, at a hotel at either Hamilton 
or uh, Swan Hill, Bendigo, East Sale, spend at Albury was another one. Um, spend all day there, rest during the day, and then fly back at night and get back to Essendon at about eight o'clock at night. Um, so that, that that was pretty tough. But unfortunately, by that stage, that was two thousand and eight. So the GFC had hit, um, which meant freight was was down. Um, nothing was was really moving. So uh, unfortunately, I got made redundant from that. Funnily enough, though, I moved back to Bankstown and fly instructing was just going gangbusters at the time. And I uh, managed to fall into a job uh, there pretty quickly, just flying twin engine aircraft. And uh, then got snapped up by Rex about four months after that. Um, started off my airline career with them and eventually made captain after two years and spent five years with Rex. And then in 2013, uh, managed to get a job with Virgin as a second second officer on the triple seven, uh, spent about four years there, and then just in the last three years, uh, now on the seven three seven, doing domestic. Did you ever think about going to fly for the air force? I did. Uh, yes. So I, I managed to get a scholarship uh, from the air force cadets to finish off my flying on the proviso that I joined the air force. Um, I got through all the way down to the medical board until they realized I actually needed glasses. Um, so in which case they said, sorry, you can't be a pilot and enter the Air Force uh, needing prescription uh, glasses. So they, they said I could go and do a laser eye surgery, but back then it was quite new uh, and I didn't really want to be a guinea pig for that. So that was pretty much the end of my Air Force career. <laughs> I write to a lot Short of people get, get weeded out with that, with that little rule. Yeah. Now they've changed it actually in the last couple of years though. I think. Uh, yeah. So you're allowed to enter now with, uh, with glasses, um, or, or corrective lenses. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I thought it was quite hilarious. They needed to enter with perfect vision, but you could then have glasses once you enter, once you got in. So go, go figure. Okay. I don't know quite how that works, but all right. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned that with uh, Regional Express, so I guess your first airline gig, you became captain after just two years, was it? Correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that, that seems like a very fast progression from first officer to captain. Is that normal at, at Rex or like other regional airlines? Yeah. Um, I, I've got to say, at uh, with, with Rex, their check and training system is really quite good. Um, it, they're, they're very strict uh, on on their pilots. A lot of people actually fear going to the sim, um, but it means that they then do the study. They 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 put in the work, um, and they're. They they come out uh, very 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 good pilots. So uh, I guess you can attest to the um, the propeller falling off uh, one of the aircraft. The way that mm-hmm. those guys handled it uh, was absolutely awesome. Just calm, cool, collected, uh, and got the aircraft back on the ground. So I think that can be a, a testament to to their check and training. Yeah, they actually wanted me to be a captain after six months, oh, uh, wow. just to, just due to demand. Um, I basically went in with a couple of thousand hours and uh, that, that was enough for them. And I said, no, I, I, I personally don't feel ready. Um, so I waited and, um, yeah, just until I felt comfortable. Mm. I guess it's quite a change going from being a captain on, on Rex flying Saab 340s around regional Australia to um, becoming a second officer on the 777 flying long haul to um, Los Angeles and at the time also Virgin flew to Abu Dhabi. Uh, what was some of the differences uh, between the the Rex gig and, and flying long haul for Virgin that you found? Oh, a- absolute chalk and cheese. You know, they um, it was it was really good having having seen that as a as a captain. Um, I'd actually gotten in uh, on hold with Virgin as a domestic pilot, but uh, there was no positions going at the time. So about eighteen months after I was on the hold file, they called me and said, "Oh." Would you like an international job? I said, yeah, sure. You know, why not? Uh, it's something completely different, something I'd never done before, uh, and it's actually one thing I could tick off the list. So, the the main differences would be, uh, well, the fact I was going from thirteen ton aircraft to three hundred and sixty tons. Uh, that was awesome, and just I think as a first jet job, uh, it was awesome just seeing the operation, getting a feel for it completely different environment multi-crew um yeah it's just vastly different i I actually really enjoyed it um 
but uh, I must say I did miss the flying um, sitting in the back. We were not actually allowed to handle the aircraft below 20,000 feet. So there's not, not a whole lot you can do between 20,000 and the cruise and likewise on the descent. So, um, yeah, I guess yeah, it, was, it was quite good. I guess that's one of the limitations of being a second officer. What's what's actually the difference between the, the captain, first officer, and second officer? What are what are each of their roles? Uh, so, basically, the, on on a multi crew um, environment like that, a, a captain will generally oversee the operation. So they they've got to be very good at delegating. Um, if you have a captain that sort of does everything, and then the second officers are sort of out of the loop. Uh, it, communication becomes a very big part of it. Uh, the, the first officer is good there for support, and likewise for the second officers. Um, you know, it, it's good, good platform for them to to learn on. Um, I must admit, even with my my experience uh, coming from the Saab, uh, it's it's completely different. Um, but I think that that was a good grounding for me then moving into a first officer role in domestic. Um, yeah, having seen that operation and how it works, I now, now definitely get more of an appreciation <laughs> of uh, of how hard, you know, they've worked to get there. Yeah. And so I guess on a flight to, say, from Sydney to Los Angeles, you'd have four crew, a captain, first officer, and two second officers. Correct. Um, yep. How many, I guess you'd all be in the cockpit for takeoff and landing with the captain or the first officer, one or the other flying, the other being the pilot monitoring. What about during the yep. cruise? Do you guys... Um, uh, delegate rest breaks or I guess what do you guys do during the flight yeah exactly so basically from uh, top of the climb uh, what will happen is we'll then uh, split up the the rest for the cruise portion uh, so it'll be one second officer with the captain the other second officer will go with the FO and um, the good thing about being a second officer is you really got to be a chameleon you know you have to learn the flows and everything like that from both the left and the right seat um, who, who does what? We sort of just left it. If the captain was the pilot flying and you're the second officer sitting in the captain's seat, that you would then do the flying. Um, you know, and, and in, in the cruise, it would be sort of trying to make decisions of avoiding weather, uh, cruising levels, all that sort of stuff. So it sort of developed your decision making as well uh, under the guidance from the first officer mm-hmm. or the captain, depending who you're with. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find that it, you got bored during a long haul flight, or is, is there always something to do on the flight deck? Uh, I, <laughs> well, yeah, looking out over massive expanses of water at, at night time, um, <laughs> you know, we did see some some pretty cool stuff though. Um, yeah, you, you do try not to be bored, um, if, if that makes sense. Like, definitely, you, you know, you can read company material or um, whatever else. Basically, talking to the other guy we normally get uh, other cabin crew coming up as well during the flight um they normally they need a break from the cabin so they're more than welcome to come up and uh, have a chat with us so they usually pass the time okay but yeah just pl- plenty of coffee yeah and we, we yeah, absolutely we, we spoke a little, uh, before a little bit about fatigue um did you find the fatigue was worse on those long-haul trips when you're changing multiple time zones and i guess also how how did you manage that yeah, so the the fatigue on LA wasn't really much of an issue for me. We were only there for thirty six hours. Um, not long. So I, yeah, not not long at all. So I managed to just stay on uh, Australian uh, Eastern Standard Time. So that that wasn't too much of an issue. Where it became a problem for me was Abu Dhabi. So because you're actually going back, I think six or seven hours, depending on the the time of year. Um, that was that was a struggle. Uh, we were there for four days as well as crew. So if I'd stayed on on Australian time, it meant I was going to bed at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, local time in Abu Dhabi, waking up at about ten p.m., maybe eleven o'clock, uh, yeah, and then spending all day. You know, so so that didn't really work. So you had to change time um, time there, which meant coming back though, I was really tired. Um, yeah, that, that would really throw me around for about three or four days and then I'd get back into it. So that was pretty much the only way of managing it. Yeah. And, uh, have you ever had to deal with any midair emergencies? Yeah, there was one, one that really, uh, comes into my mind is, uh, actually on the triple seven, um, basically 
I was uh, we were three hours into the flight, and I was on crew rest uh, on break with the captain. And we, we got a call from the flight deck and we sort of looked at each other and thought, well, it's not time to go back yet. I wonder what's up. So picked up the phone and they said, oh, you need to come back up immediately. I thought, oh, okay. So <laughs> quickly uh, put everything away and went up the front. And um, on the phone was the, was the chief pilot. And on it he said that uh, the aircraft had, had been identified as having a, uh, having a bomb on board. Um, now we all sort of, Took a moment, looked at each other, and thought if he was real or not. He said that uh, he said that it was a. They think it was a hoax uh, at this stage. So basically, the best thing we could do was turn around and uh, head back for Australia. Uh, at this point, we all looked at the uh, alternates around, and Brisbane was the closest. So we turned around and sort of started making a way for for Brisbane. Um, now, it, it just started getting interesting where we all sort of looked at each other and we thought, well, what, what happens? What happens now? So we all just actually took a minute. Uh, we, we didn't do anything for the, for the first minute. It was all quite surreal. So after that, then the training just kicked in and we all knew we had a job to do. Um, myself and the other second officer, we started looking for alternates. We didn't know if it was uh, – pressure detonated if it was a time detonation uh, an altitude we just had no idea the, the company didn't know anything so trying to talk with uh nandy air traffic control at the time was actually the hardest thing of this um trying to tell them that we needed to turn around uh it was it was quite interesting um we started talking on all channels uh, just to just to get it through to them that we needed to turn around and head back to uh, head back to Australia. Um, as did, it says, it turns out it was a hoax, which is good. Did the passengers know what was going on? And like when you when you talk to air traffic control, did you specifically tell them you know we think there's an item on board, or did you have to try and you know use kind of code language to so that it didn't get picked up? Yeah, well, we we didn't actually tell them. We actually didn't tell anyone. Uh, it was pretty much just kept on the flight tech uh, for, for the time being. So uh, we, with air traffic control, we just didn't really give them a reason. If they weren't going to give us the clearance to, to do what we wanted, then we would have had to declare a, a pan-pan or a mayday um, as such to, to get the point through to them. But as it turns out, they were okay and they actually understood what we wanted and to, to return. Uh, with the passengers, however, we didn't say anything to them. We didn't want to create panic on board. Um, so we, we didn't tell them, we just said plain language at the direction of the company, uh, we're returning to Australia. Um, we'll be there in three hours. We'll give you more information on route. So we didn't actually didn't tell them anything. Okay. And, and you also had a bit of a curly experience, um, when you're flying with Rex uh, on a flight out of Sydney, I believe. That's correct. Yep. So with, with, uh, the Saab, um, but basically had, had a call from the, the flight attendant. It was passing through about 16,000 feet or something like that. So uh, we just just hadn't crossed the um, Great Dividing Range yet. And I got a call and um, I picked up the phone and you could hear in the background that a passenger was yelling and screaming and bashing on things and the flight attendant was becoming quite concerned about what, what this passenger was doing. And um, she had basically then told me that she tried to open up the door. She wanted to get out. Um, but at that stage I said, okay, <laughs> hung up from there. And, uh, the captain and I basically went into action there as well, told him what happened and, uh, straight on air traffic control. Um, we just declared urgency and we got straight priority. It was, uh, absolutely amazing. We told them to, to tell the company for us. We didn't actually tell the passengers there that we were turning around for fear that this passenger, um, could actually go into a different state. Um, so yeah, that, I think everyone kind of understood though in that situation why we were turning around. Um, but yeah, once we'd actually got on the ground in Sydney, that passenger thought we were actually in Dubbo. Um, so something was, was clearly amiss there, but, um, yeah, so that, that was uh, quite an interesting experience as well. But, um, yeah, at least, uh, at least we're actually, actually able to, to get on with the job and do what we had to do. Yeah, and I guess it just goes to show how the training kicks in at times like these and, you know, you guys are absolutely professionals. You know exactly what to do and obviously deal with it successfully, which is great. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, this, the, the whole thing is uh, throughout my career is you, you don't need to rush things. In any kind of emergency, you know, the, the only thing that, uh, that got passed on to me from a very wise uh, check and training captain was the only thing you need to rush in an emergency is putting on your oxygen mask in a depressurization mm-hmm. because once you've got that on, then everything becomes clearer. So, you know, the, the, there's a couple of other situations that require urgency for sure, um, but not not to rush things. And that's pretty much my experience uh, with, with both these events. It's, yeah, just don't rush, think through it. And, um, yeah, you, you'll basically get, get the best outcome. Mm. So what's a kind of a typical... I don't know if uh, if you can really talk about a typical day because obviously it varies from day to day, but what's kind of a typical week or even month like for a Virgin Australia 737 first officer? Yeah, so well, a t- typical month is probably about 40 sectors, so 40 flights worth. Um, we get about between 11 and 12 days off a month, um, you know, which is some people might think that, that that's awesome, but we really need those days to recover, especially domestically. It's It's very hard. Um, a typical day would sort of see you do four sectors per day. Um, sort of pretty much what I'm doing on, on Friday, you know, sort of Sydney, Melbourne, about 45 minute turnarounds, um, going to Adelaide, turning around 45 minutes, come back to Melbourne and then back to Sydney. So on, on those days, uh, you, you rock up to, to the crew room, meet the other, the other crew member, um, talk through the days flying, the weather, any um, specific notice to airmen uh, that might uh, affect your flight, so taxiways that are out or work construction works that are going on in airports, things like that. Um, from there, we'll get the get the aircraft sorted. Uh, and now, unfortunately, we may not be on the same aircraft uh, throughout the entire day. So if you happen to be waiting for a flight and you see crew running running to the gate, most likely they've come off another flight um, and trying to get the aircraft ready as well. So that, that's that's pretty uh, pretty hard, especially if you've only got a 45-minute turnaround um, to try and pack the aircraft up that you were just on, head to another gate, restart the aircraft there and get it ready to go. So um, it's definitely much faster paced than, uh, than the international life. Um, but it, it makes the days go fast, so I still, I still quite enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what's the most amount of hours you can fly in a single day? In a single day, uh, it's about nine hours, nine hours of stick time. Okay. Um, wise That doesn't include the turnarounds yeah. and things, right? Uh, no. No, it doesn't. Yeah, so you could do like a, a barley return or, um, yeah, Perth, Perth return, um, and Fiji as, as well, yeah, so a place like that. Oh, right. Would, would they ever put you on a Bali, like a same-day Bali return? or um, They they of... used to at the start until people started going fatigue. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, during, during the flight. So uh, they've realized that that's probably pushing it a little bit too much. Um, so, yeah, so they, they stopped those quite quickly. But certainly a, a Perth return uh, is not uncommon. Sydney to Darwin return, um, yeah, in, in a day. So, um yeah, that's a good nine hours of, of flying. The recent one that I did was uh, Perth Hobart return. Um, oh. that, that, was, that was a long day. That was about eight and a half hours. That was pretty strong headwinds going home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess you guys would do a mixture of domestic and international flying? Uh, essentially, but uh, I haven't had the pleasure of doing any international flying um, passenger-wise anyway. There was a, a ferry flight that I did from Brisbane to Wellington. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just, just for a bit of maintenance there. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much my only experience with uh, international flying on the 7.3, but that could definitely change in the future. Uh, now that everything is pretty much under one, uh, one air operator certificate now, so they're mixing everything together. Uh, there could be definitely more opportunity for that in the future, which would be good. Okay. Uh, and how many nights per month would you say that you spend away from home, like in crew hotels? Oh, probably about fourteen days of that. That's about half. Wow. <laughs> yeah, almost about half of that. It's um, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time uh away from home. Um, we we have a mix of either two, three, or four day trips, um, and that that could be sent pretty much anywhere. The, the flying could be, you know, one day you're in Cairns, the next day you're in Hobart, 
then Perth, then Adelaide. Like it just, it, it varies. Um, and it all depends on demand for the upcoming months. So yeah, the, the pairings themselves aren't actually the same for us. So yeah, it'll all change. There's no one route that I do. There's no one sector or anything like that, that people think that, um, it, it varies quite a lot, which is, you know, one of the great things about the job. Mm. So what, what's the most stressful part of domestic flying? And I guess on the same token, what's the most enjoyable part for you? Oh, most stressful part uh, would probably be that the changing of aircraft. Um, there have been days where it's been four different sectors with four different aircraft, um, even pilots as well, cabin crew. Like you just have to sort of restart again uh, every time that that happens so you can't really get into a groove um that that could that could be quite stressful the weather itself that a lot of people think oh that might be stressful but you know there's there's a lot of sky um you know that we can sort of get around it so it's that's not really too much of an issue um most enjoyable part oh I, i love the longer sectors i think that sort of comes from the international flying um doing the perths Darwin's that sort of thing from Sydney. Uh, I, I love that. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's sort of a lot slower paced. You know, you can actually enjoy some food, enjoy the scenery. You know, it's 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 quite good. It's quite relaxing. Yeah. Speaking of food, what do you eat when you're on the flight deck? Do you get special crew meals or business class meals, or yeah, do you bring your own? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a good good question. We pretty much do get uh, access to the business class uh, pantry. Uh, so what, what business class passengers, uh, eat is, is, is what we eat as well. Um, we do have to eat different meals or different proteins though, between the captain and FO just for food poisoning reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, some people do bring their own, um, others, others decide to eat the aeroplane food. So I've sort of, I sort of do a mix between the two. I can't sort of sit, sit and eat, uh, the, the same food, um, <laughs> month in, month out. So you must be sick of the Luke Mangan meals by now. Oh, totally. <laughs> they're, they're good, good as they but are, I guess. Yeah, now, yeah it, it gets very repetitive. Uh, if they were to change it more often for us, that would be good because we're pretty much flying every day. Uh, it's, it's the same stuff over and over again, mm-hmm. so it gets old pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, are there any airports on the Virgin Australian network that you particularly like or dislike flying into? Um. Oh, pretty much. I love flying into Cairns. Uh, Cairns has just got awesome scenery. Um, the approaches that, that you do are, are quite good. Same with the departures. Um, that 400 foot turn off uh, runway 15 uh, to, to the south there is just is awesome. Um, especially to hand fly that. That is really cool. Um, so that'd be one of the best airports to fly in, into. Uh, one of the worst though would have to be Darwin. Uh, the way that the uh, Air Force manage the airspace there and the way that they prioritize traffic, uh, I just hate flying into there. There's, it's oh, really? quite often that uh, you'd either get uh, told to hold for you know a little Cessna or something like that. Um, yeah, I find that, that quite hard. Um, e- even harder than uh, sort of flying into non-controlled aerodromes because most pilots who are flying training or something like that will usually get out of the way for you um, so you can manage them quite easily. So by non-controlled aerodromes, you're talking about um, airports without um, supervised air traffic control towers, is that right? Correct. Yeah, exactly. So places like uh, Mackay, Mildura, uh, Ayers Rock, uh, Ballina, uh, places like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're quite fun to fly, fly into. Um that's sort of going back from the the, the Rex days, really. Mm. Uh, yeah, sort of takes me back. So just to communication is is the key there as well. It's just communicate with all the other traffic around and what your intentions are, and just plain English. Do you find uh, similar challenges that you have in Darwin when you fly into somewhere like Newcastle, which is also a military controlled airport? Um, those guys, no. Uh, funnily enough, oh, okay. so yeah, New- Newcastle I find quite easily uh, to to fly into. Um, I think it must just be the flying routes or the, well, actually the fact that there's not a lot of uh, civil traffic. It's either pretty much RPT airlines 
uh, and the military, whereas in Darwin you've got charter aircraft, you've got scenic aircraft, you've got military, you've got jets, you've got all sorts of things flying into Darwin. So uh, sure, it does make it a little bit trickier for them to, to manage all that traffic, but uh, yeah, the priorities I think are a little bit different for them. Okay. Uh, I guess frequent flyers will be very familiar with the fact that Sydney Airport has a curfew from 11pm until 6am. Do you often mm-hmm. find yourself trying to fight against the curfew either at the end of the day or also um, at the start of the day if you're arriving a little bit early perhaps on a red-eye flight? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it can be quite annoying. We can get dispensation for it in some circumstances. Uh, so throughout the day, there's been um, thunderstorm activity through. They're usually a little bit relaxed. Um, there was one instance I had actually where I was sitting on the couch on a Friday night and um, at home and I'd actually got a call from uh, crew control saying that uh, one flight had desperately needed to get to Melbourne tonight um, and the fact that curfew was approaching. So first thing, luckily I hadn't had a drink <laughs> at that point, otherwise that would have taken me out. But um, so I said, no, that's fine. I'll, I'll come in and uh, and help them out. So we had to get this aircraft pushed back um, before the curfew had hit um, and we, we were struggling to, to, to get it out. So we had actually not even closed the doors yet and we called for pushback because that's what uh, that's what basically gets gets you the clearance. So once you get that pushback clearance, then uh, you can take off after curfew. But as it turns out, um, we'd actually missed that, I think, by about one or two seconds. No. So we called the company back and we said to them, well, we've missed curfew. What do you want us to do? Um, they managed to get us a dispensation to, to push back. Oh, However that works, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they just said, we, we have a dispensation. We can push back. So we said to um, Sydney Clearance Delivery that we are good to push back. Um, they said, yep, okay, fine. <laughs> Pushed us back. Uh, we're only, I think we had about 15 minutes to get into the air. As it turns out, we taxied out, we turned the corner, heading out for 1-6 right. Um, obviously, the curfew runways are uh, in nomination. So 1-6 right for departures. Uh, as it turns out, we turned the corner. There's about five or six other aircraft also waiting. So we basically uh, missed that 15-minute window. So we called them back and we said, well, what do we do now? We've missed that 15-minute window. Um they said, okay, well, you've got another 15 minutes. How they get that dispensation, I'm not sure. But we, long story short, we managed to get out, um, I think it was about 11.45 at night. And they let you? Uh, they, they let us still depart. Yeah, 11.45. Oh. All, of us, all of us went down to Melbourne, so we didn't get there till about quarter past one in the morning. Wow. I was nervous just uh, listening to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Um, but, you know, there's a, there's been other occasions where we haven't been able to get dispensation. Um, the, we've actually departed uh, Brisbane for Sydney. It would be fly low and fast all the way. Uh, we'd get the track shortening we need. We would be on final 500 feet from touchdown, and they shut the airport, and they said, no, no dispensations, go around. And uh, we do the missed approach and head straight back for Brisbane. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, so... You know, it doesn't always work out like that, but, you know, you, you do what you can and we, we mitigate for that, so. Yeah. Would, would you have to carry extra fuel when you're flying kind of at the end of the day in those situations? Absolutely. Yeah, so the policy is within 20 minutes of curfew, we carry alternate fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, but personally from experience, you know, it's uh, anything up to about half an hour would sort of allow for alternate fuel. So if we're even arriving on uh, 899 from Melbourne to Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the schedule's 1020 landing. We'd sort of look at the weather, look at the circumstances and go, well, probably having Canberra's an alternate or something like that may not be a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't quite make sense to me because the point of the curfew is to reduce noise for the residents that live around the airport. If you're going so, around, how is that creating less noise than just landing? Exactly. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense at all. So uh, yeah, jets create a lot of noise when they go around, especially over those northern suburbs uh, there. So um, yeah, we actually had to do it on the triple seven coming in from Abu Dhabi. They six six a.m. 
uh, we thought we were right on the dot, but uh, turns out we were a couple of seconds early, uh-huh. so they made us go around. So full uh, go around thrust was uh, was needed there. We made quite a lot of noise. I can assure you. That's ridiculous. Uh, anyway, <laughs> could get yeah. a tangent about that, but I'll, I'll refrain. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, um, yeah, as a pilot, you do a lot of regular training to to, uh, to stay current. Um, could you perhaps take me through um, a typical simulator exercise? Yeah, so the same thing with the with the normal day to day flying. Uh, every sim is different, uh, but usually there's a, there's a few items to be ticked off, like as an instrument approach, um, like a precision approach. So like a normal ILS um, can be coupled to the autopilot. Uh, could be hand flown. Um, yeah, so that, it, it sort of changes there. There's um, at least one engine failure uh, on takeoff for us to handle. Um, that could be mixed in with the fire. Uh, big hole in the airplane you know who knows and you need to prioritize that i'm happy to say that so calmly um, yeah <laughs> it, it's sort of it's routine you know it's what we uh what we train for so yeah, yeah, yeah um so that way if it does happen in the real thing it's no no big shock no real surprise it's just yep go through the training go through the steps um get the thing back on the ground as efficiently as possible so um yeah sims don't really scare me as much now these days they used to at the start um, but now it's just, I take it as a form of training. So yeah, rather than checking. Mm. Now, if there's a young person listening to this, that's interested in pursuing a career as a pilot, um, what advice would you give to them? Basically to, to get into the profession for the lifestyle, um, realize that you may not be there for a lot of events uh you know throughout your career you you will miss birthdays anniversaries holidays all sorts of things so if you're still passionate enough to to get into it knowing that that you won't be uh won't be there for those events then by all means do it um yeah it's a very rewarding career at that so anyone still thinking uh, about becoming a pilot uh this it's still one of the best jobs i think uh, out there, you know, despite what, uh, what a lot of people are saying these days, but, um, yeah, it's still very rewarding for me. I still love it. Um, love the people that I work with. Um, yeah, I just couldn't see myself doing anything else. Okay. And just finally, um, this is a little bit off topic, but I wanted to get your opinion on something that I've been debating with my brother about recently. Uh, you've probably heard of the old plane on a conveyor belt myth. And so yeah. the, the, basically the question is, if a plane is on this giant treadmill, which is moving backwards at the same speed as the plane is generating thrust to go forward, so the plane is basically stationary, but with the engines revved up, will the plane actually take off? Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> Absolutely. This... Um... Yeah, th- th- this has been uh, a massive debate between uh, between pilots. So uh, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other as as such. Uh, I can see both sides of the coin, but uh, if anything, if it's if it's generating the same re- amount of thrust um, as the that the that the way the treadmill is going, then I don't think it will take off. Um, that's that's pretty much the thing if there's generating more thrust um than it is then obviously it, it'll it'll take off so um yeah that's yeah it, it, it's it's hard that one this is pretty funny i can talk about it all day actually because there's so um, many compelling theories on both sides absolutely exactly there's so many different ways to to sort of look at it so yeah yeah, I guess we'll we'll never know. <laughs> no, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and and talking to me today. Um, I, I hope that um, everything with uh, Virgin turns out well and that you you're still employed and you can continue flying for many years to come. But uh, yeah, all the best to you and your colleagues. Perfect. No worries. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Chris Bonellis. If you ever happen to be on one of his flights, by the way, Chris says that you're welcome to say hi and visit him in the cockpit at the end of the flight. Chris also mentioned that many of his pilot colleagues uh, would also welcome visitors to the cockpit after the aircraft is parked at the gate and, uh, you know, at the end of the flight. So next time you're catching a flight, if you want to go and have a look at the flight deck, there is no harm in asking. 
Chris is one of our regular contributors to the Ask the Pilot thread on AFF. Um, of course, his handle there is Aviator Insight, along with JB747, who I interviewed in episode 13 of this podcast. If you're not already familiar with the Ask the Pilot thread, it's a place where anyone can ask questions to real-life airline pilots. There are now around 15,000 posts in that thread, so there's a lot of interesting and really informative content there. Now, I realize that 15,000 posts is quite a lot to read through, so we recently created an index of popular Ask the Pilot topics with direct links to posts on a wide range of subjects from specific aircraft systems and how they work through to fuel, weather, um, even pilot simulator exercises. I've added a link to this index in the episode notes, so go and check that out if you're interested. That's it for another episode of AFF On Air. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes. You'll also find there a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread where you can talk about today's episode or ask me a question. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. I'm Matt Graham and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Until then, take care.